Okay, <clears throat> we're back from getting tea, and it's a new week. Haha. <laughs> same day, new week. <laughs> <laughs> new week for you, same day for us. Um. Do you want to hear my um my cat's new ability to communicate? I guess. Uh. So okay. So you know, I I don't know if I've talked about it on here, but I know I've told you that she knows. She knows how to turn on and off her toy. It's, yeah, it's like a you little told stick me with feathers yeah. that spins underneath a cloth. Um, she turns it on and off when she wants to play and is done playing. She uh, It ran out of batteries recently because it's battery powered. <laughs> and she was like yelling at me in a weird way because she has like a whole bunch of really specific meows that mean things. Yeah. She's very consistent with her vocalizations. Um, she was doing a weird meow. It was not a normal one, but she clearly wanted something from me. She was trying to get me to go into her cat room. Um, so I finally followed over and thinking it's like, did she put something in her water and it's not coming out? Is there a weird bug in here? Like, I assume she messed up something in her room and wanted me to fix it. Well, that was true. Something was messed up in her room. It was her toy was out of batteries. So she went over <laughs> and she put her paw on the button and she goes, press, 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 press um, with oh her tiny paw God. and stares at me while she's doing it. She's not looking at the toy. She's staring at me no. going, press, 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 press. Um, I was like, oh, it's out of batteries, huh? <laughs> What in the world? That's so funny. Oh, that reminds me. The other day, me and Hannah went to Target to return that mattress that mm-hmm. never, like, fully inflated that yeah. boxed one. And we grabbed a cart to put it in because we're obviously not carrying that heavy mattress. Yeah, a queen-size queen mattress, mattress. <laughs> in by ourselves. Two short women can't do that. Well, they could, but we didn't They'd want to. They'd be dragging to. the whole yeah. way. <laughs> and so she pulls out a cart, and somebody had left, like, a brand new thing of AAA batteries that they just forgot and probably, like, fell out of the bag in the cart. Mm-hmm. And she was like, do you want some batteries? And I was like, yeah, give me those. It's expensive. <laughs> so I've Not going to let them go to waste. Got some nice free batteries out of that Target trip of returning something that I wish would have worked because it was such a good deal. You got the money back, though? Yeah. That's good. Oh, thank goodness. Okay, so... Are you going to go first this time? Uh, sure. Okay. Sounds good to me. Okay. So I'm covering the King Island Amusement Park. My sources are Wikipedia. Al Hunters wrote a two-part article that was published on weeklyview.net. Okay. So it's it's that, arti- that, that set of two articles and Wikipedia are my sources. So King King's Island Amusement Park in Mason, Ohio was opened in 1972. It is located 24 miles east of Cincinnati and the park was built in response to the popular Coney Island park having issues with both flooding and I don't think it had enough space for the expansions they wanted to do so they said, "You know what? We're just going to sort of like, you know, Disney Magic Kingdom this and yeah. add another Part. I don't know if Coney Island's still open, though I didn't look into that because that's not what I'm covering. Either way, it was an, ex- an ex- auxiliary park to this existing popular one. Okay. Um, so the park took more than $300 million to build, which seems really low for a park. <laughs> so, yes, the park has over 100 attractions, including 14 roller coasters and a 33-acre water park. Part of the parking lot entrance at Columbia Road was built on the Dog Street Cemetery. Oh. Um, the Dog Street Cemetery was either opened in 1803 or sometime in the 1840s. There's conflicting reviews. I think it... I'm leaning towards 1803, but I didn't really try to look it up. Um, it didn't, doesn't matter at the end of the day. There's a cemetery there. And it's old. <laughs> it's old. And it has a parking lot on part of it now. Great. Um, so it had, at its peak, about 70 headstones. Now there's around 50, and that's just... The headstones disappear from cemeteries. It's a weird, normal portion of a cemetery. It shouldn't be, because people are obviously taking them. But some of them get oh. reclaimed by nature, so... They just sort of disappear into the ground. Yeah, I guess that's true. Um, so uh, 50 of 70 is pretty good when it's right next to a very active theme park. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it should be, like, more hoodlum stealing than you'd think. Anyway, so despite disturbing a cemetery (laughs) during its construction, uh, most of the paranormal activity doesn't seem to be associated with the cemetery, but is associated with just the park, basically. Nice. (laughs) Which says things about the park safety standards. (laughs) Is this like that one park In New Jersey? 
I think so. That has a documentary on HBO now. Um, I haven't like seen Like, class action that. or something like that. But it's, like, it had that, like, slide that goes, like, straight down, and there's a loop at the end. Yeah. That, gets that stuck a in human it. is just supposed to go in. Yeah. Um, no, that, yeah, that's in New Jersey. The one where I want to like, cover that. just happen regularly. So bad, but now that I know there's a documentary, it wants me to cover it less. <laughs> there is a documentary, and I haven't... I started watching it, but it was kind of boring at the beginning. So, the park, um, like I assume most theme parks, has a number of interesting deaths that occurred there. I assume people have died okay. in all theme parks. Uh, maybe that's yeah. bold of me, A lot of them die at Disney, but they don't actually pronounce like, them dead at Disney, because so, yeah, nobody can die at nobody Disney. Nobody can die at Disney. He died in a helicopter over Disney. One of the attractions is the Lion Country. Yeah, country. Ca- country and county are the same word for me, so I really struggle to make sure that they're. Uh, I know, I'm like, is there an the right R? One. Yeah. <laughs> so the Lion Country Safari was one of the attractions there. It opened in 1974 and closed in 1993. In 1976, a 20 year old Lion, Lion Country Safari Ranger was mauled to death by, you'll never guess, a lion, <laughs> a um, human being. <laughs> after leaving the tour drape to pee in the extensive enclosure, because you know it's a, it's a safari, so yeah, it's a big old field and forest, and wow. has lions loose in it, um, which is very bold. And he got out, and because he had to pee pee, and then got killed. <laughs> I cannot. So that's one of the deaths. Um, on Friday the thirteenth, um, in May of. 1983, a graduation party for a local high school was held at the park. Like, those after... You've, you've graduated. Stay here so the drinking is safe. Yeah. You know? Like, so you don't go do bad decisions and all die in car crashes. Um, one of the students, John Harder, who may or may not have been inebriated, this is not clear, um, died after he climbed into a restricted area of the replica Eiffel Tower, falling down the elevator shaft. This is a very popular story for people to tell. So there's a whole bunch of ways that they say his body was mutilated as he fell. Okay. Um, <laughs> oh, great. One of the most common tellings being he hit the counterweight in such a way that it decapitated him when he struck it. There's also other ones that say the cables for the um, elevator just ripped apart his body and he was just in little he, bits at the bottom. Yeah. Um, I don't think it was that, that graphic. Much? I think he sort of just fell a great height and died yeah. from the impact but you never know um he, he here's the thing he could have hit something and it knocked something off that's entirely yeah. possible but that's i didn't look up the police record <laughs> anyway on june 9th 1991 tim brenning was attempting to splash his friends with water i said eater <laughs> that's what's typed there with water from a fount um from a fountain <laughs> water from a fount Yes, rot water eater from a fount, water from a fountain. Unfortunately, there was a short in the electrical lighting in the fountain, which caused him to be electrocuted and fall in. Um, one of his friends, William Eddie Haithcote, attempted to save him, but was electrocuted as well and fell in. Oh. Yeah, this is like terrible. Oh my God. A nearby security guard was alerted. I don't know if he saw it or someone said, "Oh no, bad things are happening," and he rushed over. Um, he jumps into the fountain no, rather than like trying to no, reach in. No, is because no, no. like, he wanted to pull the boys out. You know, he's he's Let trying to help. Um, obviously, immediately gets electrocuted. Ah. So both Eddie and the security guard die at the scene. No. Tim, who's the original one who gets electrocuted, somehow survives, but he is um, left like significantly disabled for life. Jeez. I don't know what like the entire details are, yeah. but his he will never be the same. So, on t- this is the same day. On top of the electrocution, there's a woman in a nearby ride to where the electrocutions were happening. Um, she was riding the flight commander, saw the whole thing happen, wanted to, like, get a better view, because, like, there's people wriggling around in the uh-huh. fountain. What is happening? What is this? Moves in such a way, and I don't know if this was, like, she was purposely trying to get up and over on her, like, harness or something, or if she just moved too much one way or another. Yeah. Either way, her movements to try to get a better view caused her to fall 50 feet to her death. <gasps> it's like a selfie death. <laughs> yeah, it is. Um, anyway, this day is known in park history as Black Sunday. Because, <laughs> like, that's, that's so many tragedies. Like, goodness oh. gracious. The electrocution thing is apparently a really common, like, 
death mechanism it at these parks though because that's also happened at that new jersey park we were talking about not that we've had a story on it but like the the one with the crazy slide that's wild because they had like a raging rapids water touring yeah like at the six flags has one like someone like hopped out of the boat um I think they're just being like a dumb teen, and there was an electrical shortage, and like whatever runs the thing in him. Oh got zapped. my gosh! So yeah, um, if there's you know, electrical units in the water, don't touch it. That's one way I feel like kids in shows would get like electrocuted all the time, like in t- on TV growing mm-hmm. up. I feel like I saw it all the time. It happened a lot because I think it was a real thing that was happening a lot. <laughs> Clearly. But I just feel like I remember seeing that happen all the time, and I was like, that could never happen to me. But apparently. Often. I'm closer to death than I think. Yeah. Anyway, be be mindful. If there's a light in the water, it might Don't zap you. Don't go in there. Anywho. Now we're on to the paranormal. All right. Let's hear it. So, there's a ghost known as the little girl in the blue dress, who is one of the most common apparitions people see by both... Uh, it's visitors and employees that see her. Some of them are just, like, almost exclusively employees because they're, like, after-hours experiences. Yeah. But she's one that's just, like, always there. So this ghost seems to predate the park um, and is instead connected to the land. She is described as young, about four feet tall, and in an old-fashioned 1800s blue dress, um, which is why they think she predates the park because the park was uh, not around in the 1800s. Yeah. <laughs> So, she roams the parking lot, front gate, admissions, and international restaurant areas. She is described as friendly and was nicknamed the tram girl due to her being frequently seen by tram drivers after hours. She would run into the tram tracks, making the driver stop suddenly, only to vanish into thin air. Is that how she died? Uh, well, the tram tracks weren't there. Oh, okay. Wait, wait. Because she's the 1800s girl. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. This is like like the little trains that get you around the park. Um, People, through, like, research and assumptions have decided that she must be Missouri Jane Galenor, who died in 1846 at the age of five and is buried in the Dog Street Cemetery. Yeah. Um, they also decided that she drowned in a nearby lake. Yeah, okay. This is, here's the thing, we don't know how Missouri Jane died, so that's just a guess, because she likes to hang around the water park. They like to say that, um, Um, most young... They're kids always drown. drowning. Here's the thing. I mean, like, kids drown all the time, but they're yeah, usually dying died from, like, a fever. Illnesses. Yeah. <laughs> cough too hard or something. I don't know. <laughs> they're they're dying from everything. Yeah. <laughs> 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 dying from the... Have you... Just read old death records. They're bananas. They're because crazy. people did not understand what bodies were doing, so they'd say the weirdest stuff people were dying from. You know, honestly, they still don't. Oh, yeah. It's, it's true. They really don't. Um, but they just had some... It's so funny. Really fun ways to say people died. If like very common things now. <laughs> um, there was also a psychic that decided, yes, in fact, this ghost is Missouri, and she is sad watching the other children have fun in the park, even though no one's ever described like who's actually seen this ghost yeah. who's described her as sad. So I'm just saying this is a psychic trying to get attention. Um, yeah, psychics. <laughs> doesn't seem. Anywho, so there's also a little boy ghost called Racer Boy. So we have Tram Girl and Racer Boy. Y'all gotta get better names. <laughs> These are terrible. These are worse than, like, the woman in white. <laughs> Who And who's that one? Oh, that's that's little Racer Boy. <laughs> <laughs> he's, you know why he's called that? Because he's always seen near the Racer Roller Coaster. Okay. So he's often seen dressed entirely in white, which to me implies he's not always dressed entirely in white. So how do we know these are the same ghost? I don't, don't know. He has a change of clothes. He changes How great for him. Well. Anyway. Sometimes he's in his he'll, car's pajamas. He'll scare guests. Not be, He's not like going, boo. But like guests are scared for his safety because they report him to employees that there's a very realistic looking child wandering way too close to the wooden roller coaster. Like clearly in yeah. like the restricted areas underneath the roller coaster or something. And they're like, oh no, child, safety. But it's just the ghost. Um, <laughs> so the reason they think he haunts here, it's not because he like died on that coaster. It's because parts of the racer coaster belong to old rides from Coney Island, which makes me think Coney Island is closed, but maybe they donated some things. I don't know what's happening. Yeah. Um, 
Legend goes that two of the four carts on the racer roller coaster once belonged to the Shooting Star, which was a Coney Island ride. Um, and that it is true, they definitely used old parts yeah. on the coaster. I don't know if the car thing is specifically true, though. Anyway, so one day on the Shooting Star, a young boy was riding in the last car alone. And when the coaster pulled back into the shed, the boy was gone. They searched oh. for him, and they found his body on the tracks. This oh, is no. also going with the legend thing. I don't know if this was real. I didn't look for newspaper stories about it. Um, when the story su- While the story suggests that the boy predates the park, he was not seen until the 1990s, which is interesting. Um, which I mean... I, but based on that, I guess it means the train <clears throat> girl's always been there. <laughs> yeah. She didn't also spontaneously appear in the 1990s. So, Tower Johnny. It's another ghost. Tower Johnny. Tower Johnny. You'll Get. never, ever guess who this is the ghost of. Oh. Johnny by the tower? Uh, the boy who fell off the Eiffel Tower. The and Eiffel Mary Tower? May- yeah, the Eiffel Tower replica. Oh. Or from earlier, who was there for his high school graduation party. Yeah. Um. So he is one of the most popular ghosts in the park and is often blamed for odd occurrences. He's not like, there's no reason he should be blamed. He's just their go-to scapegoat. So gotta, be is, ta- gotta be Tower Johnny. Is, <laughs> you know him. You know him. He's reported him. to be seen um, looking at people from the top of the tower or hanging out at the fountain um, by the tower. This is not the same fountain that everybody got electrocuted <laughs> okay. in. Um, that one was by the Viking Rides. Okay. Um, the Viking Rides? What is this park? I don't know. I've never been. Anyway, his ghost it was reported soon after his death and electrical issues are often attributed to him. Um, they're like so much so that they called him Johnny's. Oh, we have a Johnny in the park, and it's an electrical oh, issue goodness. on something, which makes me concerned that he killed all those people. Um, <laughs> Johnny Tower Johnny, were you responsible? <laughs> I mean, it's kind of funny that they call it. We have Johnny, <laughs> right? Um, so we have other, a Johnny over here at the Ferris wheel. Here's the thing: it's a great way not to like terrify people. Yeah, they. Pro- I bet you everybody knows about this electrical issue, Black Sunday. Um, that's a great way not to scare them. Yeah. So <laughs> we have a black Sunday over here. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> so other guests at the park include a ghost who is attached to the Whitewater Canyon rafter rafting ride. Um, employees. And this is one that's almost exclusively experienced by employees. So they report hearing the giggling of a child um, when they're in observation towers, and the observation towers will be pelted with rocks. And this will be like after visitors have left, when they're like you know cleaning up, making sure everything's okay. Yeah. Still in the towers. They call him Woody. Um, and he's experienced most often at Observation Tower 2, which is located deep in the woods, and it's only access- accessible by a narrow footpath, which is why I assume he's called Woody, Not because he's me. usually in the woods. Um, another ghost haunts the Beast Roller Coaster. Riders report seeing glowing red eyes in the woods near the ride. Ooh. And then the Octopus Ride is also rumored to be haunted, but by no one octopus. told me details. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he inks you. That one's called o- Octopus Boy. <laughs> he inks you. Anyway. So that's actually the end of my paranormal stories, but not the end of the King Island things I want to tell you about. So on top of the cemetery and all the theme park tragedies, the third reason why the area may be so haunted is because of this event that happened on the land, which is why it's called King's Island because of this. Yeah. Event. um, Not event. It just used to be. Oh, we'll we'll get there. It's not like a secret. It's just easier to explain. Yeah. So in 1872, Joseph Warren King and his nephew, Imaz, here's the thing, it's spelled A-H-I-M-A-A-Z, and I don't know how to pronounce that. Amaz? Amaz King, either way. It's, it's Amaz? Two men from the King family um, were okay. forced out of their business, um, which was the Miami Powder Company, through hostile takeovers. Like, people bought all their stocks and then said, go away. Yeah. So in response to this, the Kings bought 832,000 pounds of Civil War surplus gunpowder, because no. that's that's what they're they're um they dealt in explosives because yeah. they're the powder company, um from the St. Louis Armory, um to drive, who stole the, like drive the other company that was stolen from them out of business by like making unprofitable mm-hmm. prices for things. They they said we're all going down together. <laughs> so in eighteen seventy eight, the they opened the Great Western Powder Co. Um. And the factory for it was built where the King's Island Park is today, which is why it's King's 
because it's the king king family. Mm-hmm. Um, so the factory included a company town and encompassed both sides of the river because apparently this park is located next to a river, even though the reason they had to build this park here is because of flooding at the other park. This Anywho, river doesn't flood. Who knows? It's the same river. It's, well. the, it's the little <laughs> Miami. Um, so there were at least 20 known explosions at the factory. Oh, my gosh. Which killed about a dozen people, these various little explosions. Um, horses had to wear brass shoes to prevent sparks. Um, that's how easy you could set the place off. It's just like oh the horseshoe sparking kablooey. Um, so, like, a former employee said a victim of one of these explosions who wasn't wearing the required thick wool socks over his shoes in the powder room. I don't know how this is preventing fires, by the way. I assume that means there's, like, metal in the shoes it's hitting. And it's like, why don't you just use brass nails in their shoes then? Why are we wearing the socks? Because shouldn't that create, like, static Static? electricity? Either way, he's not wearing his thick wool socks. Um, He explodes. Because that's what happens here. Um, And, anyway, the former employee who witnessed this said we didn't find enough of him to make a bait for a crawfish oh my god stop the explosions were so common that most structures were built in a way that you could um do quick post-explosion reconstruction (laughs) oh my gosh it's like a selling point on a building yeah (laughs) so one of the worst explosions that happened was and this is like the big why is Syria curses from this explosion? Um, not all the other ones that killed actually more people altogether, but oh well. This one's this one was like insane though. Okay. So it happened July of 1890. While loading a freight train with cars full of powder, one of the cars broke. One of the car brakes failed, and then it slipped its moorings, causing it to careen towards the other cars that were loaded with 1,600 kegs of powder. Oh my um, gosh. So the first explosion that happened was so loud it burst the eardrums of everyone in the immediate vicinity. Oh, dear. And then there were two following explosions that were equally, if not louder than that one. Because I think it was like a chain yeah. reaction of kablooies. Boom, boom, um, boom, boom. So this event killed 11 people, three of which were children. The explosion caused fires that burned for five hours, but managed to not to ignite the warehouse that contained 2,000, no, sorry, 25,000 kegs of powder. Um, which is like good night. That's lucky. Everyone would have been yeah. gone otherwise. Um, Tim Dowdy, a six-year-old at the time, said, "I was playing under the apple tree with two other boys on the opposite side of the main office building when it happened. After the explosion, everything got dark, and all the apples fell on top of us." <laughs> <laughs> which is such a six-year-old observation. Oh my goodness. <laughs> All of a sudden, all I know is I'm Here's, covered in That apple. shows you how common explosions are, though. He wasn't concerned about it. This one it was it. just so big that everything went dark, which was weird. That was the new thing, the darkness. And then we got hit by all the apples. <laughs> it was very adorable. Anyway, he was fine otherwise. Yeah. <laughs> there was nothing left of those who died in this explosion, so the oh. identities of the victims had to be discovered through roll call. They'd have to call everybody oh in and see who was missing, who didn't respond, who didn't say I'm present. Um... So that's how they determined who died. The cars involved in the explosion were entirely gone. Absolutely nothing left of them, which is insane because cars are also made of metal. Yeah, that's They're a not lot like just of... wood that burned up or something. That's how intense this explosion was. Um, the plant was sold off in 1934 and it later became a Columbia Records factory where they pressed records until <laughs> 1948 so maybe some people out there have some vintage cursed records from yeah. the king's island area what a turn of events. either way so this is the land this is what was the previous use before it became um, wow. a theme park uh that's notorious for being haunted <laughs> that's a good story i like that so one. It, it could be that the uh little girl is associated with this disaster maybe not as early, but this this being here. Yeah. Um. I wonder if that's what the Dog Street Cemetery is. No, because it was it was before that. It existed longer than that. Yeah. Either way, apparently a lot of this old um. Factory town is still present. Yeah. In the area, it's just not, like I don't think you can tour it. It's like a back portion of the park, which is interesting. That'd be neat if they could open that up as like a historic tour. Mm-hmm. To an old timey town or something. Either way, that's the King Island Amusement Park. 
I like that story. And it was, was good. It was good. It was fun. Okay. Ghost is less exciting than the actual space, though. Yeah. Okay. I love this story. And it's about Dimebag Daryl. <laughs> I got my information from Wikipedia, TheRollingStone.com, iHeart.com, OnlyInYourState.com, Loudwire.com, Grunge.com, and RockCelebrities.net. And when I tell you I probably spent at least four hours researching this, I did. And I got most of my notes from a Rolling Stone article from 2004 that they tried to make me pay for. Because <laughs> they were like, you get this first one for free. But then I guess it, like, timed out because I had it up overnight. And then they tried to make me pay for the article. Um, but I went out and, like, went back into the thing. And part of the article would load. And I was like, I'm going to try and take pictures and see if I can get any. Because if I have live photos on, I can, like move it along and like keep it in the live photos so i took like at least 30 pictures of and i got the whole article after like scrolling super quick and like snapping Uh as quick as i could so (laughs) um, i was very dedicated to this because that article had the best information Mm -hmm. because it was taken right around the time of this incident so i got the most information from there for free because i'm not paying for an article from 2004 Anyway, so, Daryl Lance Abbott was born in Ennis, Texas on August 10th, 1966. He was the second son of Carolyn and Jerry Abbott, who was a country music producer. His older brother, Vinnie Paul, was born on March 11th, 1964, and Abbott's parents divorced in 1979 after 17 years of marriage, but his family life remained happy. The brothers lived with their mother in a ranch-style home in Monterey Street in Arlington. And their father, Jerry, didn't live far away, so Daryl would get on his bike and go over for guitar lessons, um, quote, pretty darn regularly. (laughs) Um, Carolyn was also supportive of her son's musical endeavors. So, Abbott took up the guitar when he was 12. Before he wanted a guitar, he wanted a BMX bike. And at the age of 11, he started playing drums. But his brother Vinny said, quote, I just got better than him and wouldn't let him play them anymore. <laughs> um, so his first guitar was a Les Paul-style honer, which he received mm-hmm. along with a pig nose amplifier on his 12th birthday. He had decided he wanted to play the guitar after hearing Black Sabbath. Um, he then also became influenced by Judas Priest, Kiss, and Van, ha- Van Halen. Um, the first concert he ever went to was a Kiss concert. Fun. So, I swear Kiss has been around for freaking ever. It's true. Um, and I love Gene Simmons. Oh my god, he seems so cool. I <laughs> wish I could be a best friend. He's amazing. Okay, so, when he started playing, he would spend time in his room standing in front of a mirror holding the guitar while he was wearing Ace Fraley style makeup, but, um... This was before he could actually play. He was just, like, envisioning his rock uh star life. Um, Jerry learned Kiss songs on the guitar in order to teach Daryl how to play them, which is so cute. Mm -hmm. Um, Daryl also learned um, from country music musicians who recorded at Jerry's studio, such as Bugs Henderson. Daryl and Vinny grew up playing music together, and their first jam session consisted of six hours of Smoke on the Water. I don't know what that means, but I assume... It's a a song. Yeah, I know, but... (laughs) Just playing that over and over, I guess? I I guess. So they took inspiration from Alex and Eddie Van Halen, and Vinny said in a 2016 interview that he and Daryl were inseparable after they began playing music together. So they've been, like, really close their whole lives. Mm -hmm. Um, Daryl was a natural at guitar, and at the age of 14, he entered a guitar contest at the Agora Ballroom in Dallas, in which Dean Zelensky, founder of Dean Guitars, was one of the judges. His other, his mother accompanied him to the club since he was not old enough to enter by himself. (laughs) Um, He won the competition and Zelensky recalled that quote, Abbott blew everybody away, which I obviously, I feel like he was probably the youngest in this competition. Um, Daryl went to, Daryl went on to win many other guitar contests in the area and was eventually asked not to compete and instead judge the competitions so others could win. (laughs) (laughs) Um, so Pantera was formed in 1981. Vinny was asked to join the band alongside his high school classmates, because I think they were all still in high school at this point. At least Vinny was, because he's, Mm -hmm. what, two years older than... 
Something like uh, that. He was 64. Yeah, two, about two years older than Daryl. Um, so he could, I guess he could have been in high school with them, but he might still have been in middle school. I don't remember the exact age that he joined. But so Vinny was asked alongside to join the band alongside his high school classmates, Terry Glaze, who was on guitar, Tommy Bradford, who was on the bass, and Donnie Hart, who was on vocals. Vinny accepted the invitation, but on the condition that Daryl would also be able to join the band. Um, Glaze later recalled that they were unsure about this because they didn't think Daryl was very good, and he was also two years younger than them, and, quote, was a skinny, scrawny dude. So they just didn't like what to accept the, you know, younger, Whatever his look was. boring little brother. Yeah. Um, but they agreed, and Daryl made the same request in 1989 when Dave Mustaine asked him to join... Megadeth? Megadeth? Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I can't really tell. I might have typoed. But they already hired a drummer, so Daryl stayed with Pantera. So they're very close and actually stick up for each other. Um, you can tell they're not sisters. <laughs> <laughs> because I feel like the older sister would be like, don't even think about joining my band ever. You can't even come <laughs> listen. So by 1982, Hart left the band and was replaced by Glaze on vocals, which... Yeah. He was on guitar and then switched mm-hmm. to vocals. I was going to say, he was already in the yeah. band. Um, while Rex Brown took Bradford's place as bassist. I would assume that's the term. The correct term. Ba- what, bassist. How else would you say it? Or bass player. Okay. Because <laughs> you don't need to make it one word. <laughs> um, Daryl originally had shared lead guitar with Glaze, but soon took a permanent position as lead guitarist. Because I know that one's right, so bassist should be. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't seem yeah. right. Glaze said, quote, Abbott just morphed over a six-month period. When he came out, he could play, like, Eruption and Crazy Train. So I guess that's him saying he was super good. Abbott adapted the stage name Diamond Daryl in reference to the Kiss song Black Diamond. At this time when they're, I guess, becoming maybe a little more popular. So, Pantera originally had a glam metal style and was image conscious, so the members wore spandex, makeup, and hairspray when they were on stage. The band signed to Metal Music Records, which was created by their father, Jerry, who actually managed and engineered and produced Pantera from their formation in 81, right up to the band um, landing a major record deal in late 89. Which is really cute. Mm-hmm. Um, so Pantera released their first album, Metal Magic, in 1983 when Abbott was 16. Wow. I mean, all of them are young at this yeah, point. Yeah, no, Because be they like were only two. So then, yeah. Yeah. Well, I don't know about the new people. That's true. But, because when did this band start? 81? So two years so later. So he started the band when he was 14. Yeah. That's crazy. So... Yeah, Pantera released projects In the Jungle and I Am the Night in 1984 and 1985. Both albums followed in the glam metal style and were compared to Shout at the, De- Shout at the Devil era Motley Crue, if people know those songs and albums. Um, so around this time, the Abbott Brothers began listening to bands like Metallica and Slayer, which made them want to move towards a heavier sound, which Glaze wasn't happy with. He later said he, quote, didn't want to go that heavy. I didn't like it as well if the guitar was the main thing, like the Metallica songs. So this conflict alongside with a contractual dispute led to his departure in 1986. So, Glaze was replaced as um, vocals by Phil Anselmo in the late 86, and the band briefly signed with Gold Mountain Records, but they wanted to change their style and make their sound more like Bon Jovi, um, which isn't metal, and they didn't want to do that, because how would you say... That's that's very different. That's right. (laughs) Anyway, so clearly the band's like, we're not doing that. Um, Pantera eventually attained a major label deal with Atco Records. Um, Cowboys from Hell was released on July 24th, 1990, and this album marked the development of what would become Pantera's familiar sounds, to which Abbott's guitar playing was central. So, like, he was really, like, the Mm -hmm. pinnacle of this band, I guess you could say. 
Um, self-described as Power Groove, the album became a blueprint-defining work for groove metal. Cowboys from Hell was certified gold in 1993 and platinum in 1997. So, they started from a literal high school band. Mm -hmm. It's kind of crazy. So, Pantera played close to 200 shows supporting Cowboys from Hell as it toured for nearly two years. The band spent most of the 90s touring and Abbott gained a reputation as a wild figure on tour and a heavy drinker. Um, As most people do. (laughs) Um, So, they came out with another album, Vulgar Display of Power, on February 25th, 1992, which stayed on Billboard 200 for 79 weeks. That's a long time. In 2017, it was ranked at number 10 in Rolling Stone's list of 100 greatest metal albums of all time, with Abbott's, quote, serrated rhythms and squealing solos highlighted. So, they really did stuff for the metal industry. Mm -hmm. Um, Abbott had transported his appearance, or, yeah, by the time of vulgar display of Power's release to what he would maintain for the rest of his life. Transformed? Yes, that's why I was so confused. <laughs> like, I was transported. Like, this okay, so <laughs> he sported a dyed goatee, Fine. a razor blade pendant, cargo shorts, and sleeveless shirts. He felt that Diamond Daryl no longer suited his image or sounds and adapted the sta- or adopted the stage name Dimebag Daryl instead. The name was originally coined by Anselmo. Um, it was in reference to Abbott's refusal to accept more than a dime bag of cannabis at one time. Um, they put in parentheses, slang for $10 worth. <laughs> Even if it was offered for free, because he did not want to be caught with the drug on hand. Yeah. Smart. So, Daryl had a longtime partner, Rita Haney who lived in the same neighborhood as him growing up, and they actually first met at the age of eight. How oh, wow. freaking cute is that? They never got married because Rita once said in an interview, quote, we did not believe in the marriage thing. We had, why have someone you don't know tell you it's okay to be with someone you do know? We didn't need the <laughs> middleman. <laughs> we had a one-on-one with the, ma- the man upstairs ourselves. So they didn't want to get married. And that's a reason, and I think it's a good reason. Um, they bought a house together in 1995 in Texas where Abbott kept a pet goat on the residence and dyed its goatee like his own. <gasps> That's so I funny. saw that. And I, oh, I saw that like when I had just gone back through everything yeah. to make sure I got everything. And I was yeah. like, I'm so glad I just saw this because I almost missed it. And that's like one of my favorite parts of this. So some years went by. And they came out with more albums and songs, and like most bands, had issues and disputes, but they were set to begin a European tour on September 11th, 2001, but due to the attacks in New York, the tour was canceled, and they all returned home, where they agreed to take a short hiatus. So during this time, some of the band members, um, and I would assume beforehand, because like a lot of people who are in bands also do like backup in other bands and Mm -hmm. stuff like that, um... But during this time specifically, some of the band members who were in other bands started releasing songs and albums, like, more than yeah they used to because they had more time. So the Abbott brothers had believed that Pantera would regroup in 2003 after the tour. Wait. Yeah, regroup in 2003 after the tours their other members were on ended, but Anselmo started recording another album, I think, solo? Or something, or he was, like, the lead of it, whatever. And Brown called Daryl and said he wasn't returning to Pantera. So, the separation of Pantera was marked by the release of a Greatest Hits album. The best of Pantera, far beyond the greatest Southern Cowboys vulgar hits. On September 23rd, 2003. What is that whole name? (laughs) So, the Abbott brothers decided to form a new band, because if they would have done like, just recreated Pantera. Mm-hmm. There could have been legal repercussions. Yeah. Um, and they gained Patrick Blackman? Sure. On vocals, and Bob Kaka? Kaka? On bass. Um, so the band signed with Electro Records later in 2003. The name of the band was originally Newfound Power, which I like that name. Yeah. But it was later changed to Damage Plane. 
Never I mind. like that less. Yeah, <laughs> me too. So the new band started, or the new band spent most of 2004 on its devastation across the nation tour to rebuild a fan base, um, and they toured nightclubs across the country. Their first album, I think, that they released, they named Newfound Power. Okay. So they still kept that around a little. Okay, so here's where we really get into it. Oh my god, I didn't even realize how long that was. Okay. Dun, dun, dun. How far in are we? <laughs> I think we're more than halfway. I'm moving pretty quick because I, like, I feel like I could tell you this story without looking at these notes. Yeah. On December 8th, 2004, Damage Plane was performing at the Al Rosa Villa Nightclub in Columbus, Ohio. Four bands were on the roster, and about 250 people who paid about $8 per ticket were in the audience. And I think at least two of the bands were just, like, local, like, small Mm -hmm. rocker bands. Um, And the third one might have been bigger, but anyway, so most of these people that are at this little show are just, like, locals and, like, just small bands. Um, So a man named... Nathan Gale was hanging outside in the club's parking lot while the music played inside. A construction worker from Marysville, Ohio, noticed him. Um, he described him as being about six foot three and weighed more than 250 pounds. His head was shaved and he wore thick glasses and a Columbus blue jackets hockey jersey over a hooded sweatshirt. Um, so there was a, like a different a fan outside. That saw him and said, hey, man, why aren't you watching the show? I don't want to see no crappy. And it said uh, a different word, but this podcast is not explicit. Um, I don't want to see no crappy local bands, he said. Um, and the, the fan said, well, you can at least go inside and stay warm. And he said, no, man, I'm going to wait for damage plane. So he's just, you know, all right. <laughs> so the, cl- <laughs> the club manager at the time, Rick Catul... Cat- yeah um noticed gail and thought he was just a harmless hanger on um he said that he didn't have a ticket and quote he was just a little crazy he was just a crazy fan trying to talk to members of the band like i guess he Mm -hmm. just sees people sometimes just waiting around don't have enough money to pay to get in but hope they can see him on their way out um one of the guys who helped to set up the bands eventually told him to leave so instead as Damage Plane took the stage, Gale jumped a six-foot-high fence and rushed into the club through a side door. He walked swiftly past pool tables, a bar, and sound booth before reaching the left side of the stage. Witnesses in the crowd thought Gale wanted to stage dive because back then you could do those to go on stage without it being a safety mm-hmm. issue. Um, it was only about 90 seconds into the first song of the, of the set. So, Billy Payne, the singer for Volume Dealer, who was one of the local bands, yeah. um, he saw Gail enter the club and said, quote, The dude was determined. He was on a mission. He looked angry. He was walking like he like he was going into battle. So, that's not, that's not great. I feel like you want to, like, briefly <clears throat> stop those people and say, what's up, man? But it also <laughs> was 2004. And it's true. You, things were different. So, on stage, Gail drew a Beretta 9mm handgun and headed straight for Daryl. Joe Dameron, the bass player for Volume Dealer, um, thought Gail shouted something about Pantera, but wasn't sure. He said, quote, with the feedback, I couldn't hear what he said. I saw him open his mouth to yell something, but I didn't know what it was. He just looked determined. Gail shot Daryl, who was headbanging, his hair in his face, mm-hmm. Um, and a fan who was standing nearby said, Dime was doing his thing. He gets really into it, so he was blindsided. So, I don't even know if he would have even seen this guy no, he approaching might have seen him, him at all. all. Yeah. So, an employee who was bartending that night thought firecrackers had gone off. Others thought the speakers had popped or something, or somebody had fired a cap gun, which, what was happening in 2004 that people were firing cap guns? guns. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Um, Ryan... Mel? These are just some, some different last names. Um, who was working security that night said, I thought he was playing a big gimmick. People were pumping their fists like it was a hoax. So even the security was like not... Like no one thought this yeah. was real. So the music stopped because Daryl had been shot. Mm-hmm. Um, Vinny, Daryl's brother, stood up behind his drum kit. 
Um, Daryl's guitar had started to emit feedback and a high-pitched shriek. A security guard tackled Gail, who was continue who had continued shooting into the crowd. Oh gosh! Um, one bullet grazed the arm of Travis Bur- Burnett, who was a burly former soldier who dropped his beer and ran toward the stage to try and disarm the shooter. So, like, some people so saw this. So, he immediately and, figured it out because he yeah. got shot and said, well, we got to take him down. Well, no, he was shot when he was running at him. But oh, I think he probably saw him, like, pull the gun. I thought he gun. was shot and then ran at him. No. So, um, disarmed shooter. Okay, so, Burnett got to Gail and said, WTF, are you doing? Again, clean podcast. He clearly would have said the real words. And Gail said, get out of here. Get away. And as Burnett went to grab him. Gail shot at him. Burnett said the bullet went through his shirt and he didn't even feel it because his adrenaline's obviously mm-hmm. really going. Okay, so, so that's when he gets shot in the arm. Yeah, when he I had see. gone so up. he saw something he was rushed happening the stage. immediately. Yeah. So, Daryl was lying on the stage, bleeding from his head. While most fans fled, one of them, Mindy Reese, a registered nurse from Columbus, rushed forward and said... Uh, quote, I said, F this. Again, she said the real thing. Um, I'm a nurse. He needs help. I did chest compressions for 15 to 20 minutes. I kept saying, Dimebag, come on, come on, please stay with me. So, Darrow was near death by the time paramedics arrived. Um, from the backstage area, an officer, James Niegman, Niegmeyer, carrying a 12 gauge Remington shotgun walked past a stack of amplifiers and saw Gail who had taken a male hostage holding his gun to the man's head Mm. um Gail began moving towards the rear of the club and from about 20 feet away the officer fired once killing Gail with a shotgun Mm -hmm. he for sure hit the other person no how um let me see if I put down here what he said I don't think I did so the police officer, hold on, yeah, wait, I might have said it down here. No, I didn't. Mm-hmm. Um, so the officer came on the scene, saw him holding the guy hostage, which mm-hmm. was, I think, like another band member, and... He said something in an article. He was like, I knew that I would be able to shoot him from where I was and not injure the hostage. So he mm-hmm. was like, so I just took the shot. Yeah. And so he d- didn't get the other guy at all. As far as I could tell, he didn't get the other guy at all. Mm-hmm. Um, and was just able to kill Gail, like, instantly, which is, like, great. Because everybody else is like, mm, you just stay there. Mm. And <laughs> get away or whatever. But anyway, so that guy's a hero. According to people in Marysville, Nathan Gale was troubled, but not prone to violence. Oh, because they never are. Everybody's perfect. (laughs) They just had it. (laughs) Anyway, so he enlisted in the Marines in 2002, but left for unknown reasons 18 months later. He thinks so, too. He worked on construction sites in an oil chain shop, Minute Lube, and as a landscaper. The spelling of Minute for that is... I know. I thought it said minty. <laughs> I did too. It's M-I-N-I-T. Whenever I saw it in the article, I was like, I had to do a double take. I was like, what does, what does that say? Oh, no. So he also played offensive guard for Lima Thunder, a local semi-pro football team. Concussions. Yep. On the team bus, he could often be found with his headphones on listening to Pantera. So here's the best way to get your band to regroup is by killing one of the members. <laughs> is apparently the moral of the story. <laughs> apparently so. So on November 17th at 3.20 a.m., which this is before the event, obviously, mm-hmm. um, police arrested Gail for driving with a suspended license. By then, friends told the Columbus Dispatch Gail had changed. He began talking and laughing to himself. He told a friend that Pantera had stolen his songs and that he was going to sue them. Oh, so this was the issue. It wasn't trying to get the band back together. Just you wait. (laughs) So Lucas Bender, the manager of Bear's Den Tattoo in Marysville, said Gail was a frequent visitor. He said that this man was there almost on a daily basis. To get a tattoo? Tattoos? Piercings? I think just to be there? Um, Lucas said, quote, I tried to keep him away from the clientele. He kind of gave everybody a weird impression. Um, and if anybody is a regular to a a tattoo parlor, 
and gives everyone a weird impression. I think they're not, um, what is the even word? Harmless? They're not harmless. There's there's something going on. So Lucas said that Gail, um, told him he'd left the Marines due to mental problems and was taking medication and that he may have been bipolar. So I guess for some reason this Luke, this Lucas guy is like the only one that actually knows any like real thing about this man. The tattoo parlor guy. He is the manager of the tattoo place that he goes to all the time. He, yes, you know, it's y- his you only end friend, up talking during tattooing processes. They're long. Yeah, <laughs> doesn't mean he was a tattoo tattoo artist. Yeah, I know, but if you're just but, sitting around okay, waiting, so, I get it. Okay, so he said he had um, he was infatuated with guitarists like of any kind, and even one of their tattoo artists who played the guitar. Um, Nathan became, like, really weird and, like, wanted to hang out with him. Mm-hmm. And this guy, I don't think the tattoo artist was, like, necessarily <laughs> yeah. into this. He was just like, can you leave me alone, please? This is not a new friend he desired. So, as police officers and detectives swarmed the Al Rose... I feel like I spelled that different than when I originally did. Al Rosa, that's right. So it's either Al Rose or Al Rosa, because I spelled it wrong and I can't remember which one. Villa. This club that they were playing at. <laughs> yeah. Vinny Abbott escaped into the damaged plane tour bus, and he climbed into Dimebag's bunk and wept. Because it was Which his is brother. so sad. That makes me... Like, I read that line and I was like, I am dead inside. So Billy Payne, the volume dealer singer, said Dimebag loved us. They told us to stay after the show. Um, they were going to talk to us and have drinks with us. It was a local band's dream come true turned into a nightmare. So that's so sad. So there are some different accounts of this part, but this is like the most popular recount that I saw. Mm -hmm. Um, So Gail shot Daryl four times, three being at his head slash the back of his head, and one bullet hit his hand. So according to his autopsy report, Daryl had sustained gunshot wounds to the right cheek, one to the back of the head, one to the left of his face, and one to the right hand. So the first three were obviously the cause of death because mm-hmm. they're headshots. The shot to the cheek exited behind his right ear, and the shot to the left ear exited through his left posterior scalp. So that's really so the terrible. And then the bullet to the back, back of the head of his... um, seems to have stayed lodged because there was no exit wound reported. That seems to be more common. If you shot through the front or the sides, it goes through. If it's through the yeah. back, that's staying it's in something there. something weird. I don't know. But, so, Gail, um, it says that he also killed four more people and injured well, three. Into the crowd. So, the security guard from the band, Jeffrey Mayhem Thompson, um, who had tackled Gail, initially was shot during the struggle. Mm-hmm. So, that's how he was able to get away. Because at first, I was like, how did he get away if somebody tackled him? And, like, yeah. was able to get that hostage. Yeah, shot um, so a fan, Nathan Bray, was also killed as he attempted to aid Abbott and Thompson as with Aaron Hawk, an employee of the venue who tried to disarm Gail while he was reloading. So all these people, like... They all died in action. Yeah, they all really... They everybody was trying to stop this guy, yeah. which is really, like, good to see instead of everybody fleeing and but just leaving it I be. I mean, that, that seems like a common thing for music. Yeah. People are usually on... yeah. If you're a big so, old concert goer, you're here to stand up for everybody. Yeah. You know, like, the, the kind of style where it's like, you're not going to let anybody die in the mosh pit if they don't know how to mosh pit. Yeah. <laughs> it's, it's that, this is the vibe I'm getting here. So, <laughs> Abbott was pronounced dead at the scene, age 38. The officer who shot Gail was proclaimed a hero, but he suffered from severe post-traumatic stress disorder and severe anxiety and eventually quit the police force. In 2011, he got a civilian job and was still seeing a counselor due to the emotional distress he suffered in 2004. So, this really stuck with him for the rest of his life, and yeah, he was I never mean, the same after. 100% not a situation you want to ever have no. to deal with. I feel so bad for that guy, too. Um, so, thousands of fans attended his public memorial, and the guest list included artists such as Eddie Van Halen, Zach Wilde, Corey Taylor, Jerry Car- Cantrell... And Dino Cazares. Abbott was buried alongside his mother at the Moore Memorial Garden Cemetery in Arlington, Texas. Gene Simmons donated a kiss casket for the burial. 
And Eddie Van Halen donated his original black and yellow striped 1979 Charvel Bumblebee guitar to be included in the casket. So he's buried literally with that guitar. Yeah. Um, a few weeks prior to his death, Abbott had actually met Van Halen and asked him for a replica of the Bumblebee because it was like his most like yeah. known thing t- yeah. t- for him. Um, Van Halen said at the funeral, quote, Dime was an original and only an original deserves t- the original. Which is so cute. It was rumored that Daryl's last words were Van Halen, which was a code for having fun between him and his brother Vinny. Oh, like before they went on stage? I don't know. Whenever... Because, um... I don't know how alive he was. Um, what's... I mean, it could have been that before he went on stage, or because Vinny stood up right whenever he saw it happen and went right mm-hmm. up to him, so he could have said that. It's yeah. his very last words. But that's, like, it's also a, ru- a it's times. also a rumor that those were his last words. That's true. That's what I said, so. Um, but anyway, that makes it even more tragic. Yeah, right? <laughs> um, so Daryl's tombstone reads, he came to rock and rocked like no other with the heart twice the size of Texas, our beloved brother, companion, mentor, icon, and friend. I'm assuming it says icon because it's And not iron. iron. <laughs> um, we love you, Dime, until we meet again. So, after Vinnie Paul's death in 2018, he was buried next to his mother and Daryl, also in a kiss casket. In late 20... 20- was that one also donated? I don't know. Maybe, because I think most of Kiss is still alive, actually. That's true. Um, in the late 2020, a... Uh, pre- a protective fence was installed around the Abbott burial ground in an effort to stop vandalism, as Daryl's grave had previously been scratched and defaced by people over the years, which Why? makes me want to injure someone. That is so terrible, and nothing I have read would indicate that should he would ever have, like, enemies. Yeah, like that. no, I can't stand people. So his legacy. Um, so in 2015, Abbott was ranked as the most influential meta guitar- as one of the most influential meta guitarists in the past 25 years by VH1. He also placed number five on the Gibson's list of the top 10 metal guitarists of all time. Quote, he will always be remembered as one of the most significant engineers of modern metal, which is like, there's so many other like awards and things yeah. that he's been on and the yeah. band's been on since his death. It's like kind of crazy how much. Like I've never heard of this guy. No, I feel like I, I've heard of some like these other people. Th- obviously, I've, I've heard of Pantera. Right, that I've band heard name of the name. Here's the thing: we don't, we're not great at no. music. We're not, <laughs> we're not metal. We're not rock and roll. But I this I don't I was like obsessed with the story when I was reading it. I was like, mm-hmm. this is great, and he seems like a great person. And there's so, that's why it's so long is because there's so much on him because he was Mm -hmm. famous. So like, but to me, I have never heard of this man ever. So one of my favorite things that I read about Daryl was that one time in 1998, he met Dave Grohl. I know Dave Grohl. Everybody knows Dave Grohl Mm -hmm. from the Foo Fighters. I honestly couldn't tell you. In case you you didn't know. (laughs) I couldn't tell you a Foo Fighters song, but anyway. (laughs) So nowadays, Dave Grohl is known as, quote, the nicest guy in rock. This is what he said about Daryl. Quote, there was an Ozfest in England in 1998 and corn canceled. So corn, he got the... How dare you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so he got the call um, for, you know, the Food yeah. Fighters to come and play. Um, it was Slayer, Pantera, and Black Sabbath. He had to go... Or we had to go on after Pantera. I was so terrified. Quote, there's going to be a riot. I'm going to get drawn and quartered. No one's going to like our band. But it's we played. To be corn and it's not. Yeah. Well, and because they were smaller back then, and like yeah, exactly, this is so, what they do. Um, what did I say? But we played, and I looked to the side. The guys from Pantera are watching us and singing the lyrics to our songs. That's so cute. Oh. Afterwards, we made friends with Pantera. I was nervous and scared. I didn't think I fit in, but they were so open to us that, um, that backstage hospitality we try to have. It all came from Pantera. Dime Bandera was the nicest effing guy in the world. He could talk, he could walk in and do a shot of Crown Royal with Justin Bieber, with Rick Nielsen, with James Brown. He was everybody's best friend, and you could feel that energy when he was playing. 
after that day, I was like, from now on, everybody's allowed in this room. I don't care if it's Britney Spears. I became the backstage best friend. <laughs> What's up with that one? What's that I statement? became the backstage best friend. Whenever I showed up at a festival, the first thing I'd do is grab a bottle of whiskey and go knocking on doors to see who the funniest people are. You'd be surprised who the real effing nutcases are. And that's the story of Dime Ben Daryl, one of the nicest rocker metal people. Yeah, he had to be pretty darn nice if he somehow have existed. created the nicest guy yeah. in rock and roll. Which was funny because when I was presence. reading that quote and they said Justin Bieber in there, I was like, was he? He should. He was not like five years old. Right? Yeah. I think that's but just, it's like just a him. No, it was just him saying like, like anybody, it does. It could be anybody. literally anybody, and he make best friends with them. That's how nice he was. So it's like Drew's yeah. personality. Yeah, <laughs> just very charismatic. But I don't know why I was just so like obsessed with this. I spent hours, and I literally. I have not been able to sleep well, so I've been literally, like, getting into bed, because I'll be tired. I get into bed at, like, 10.30, whatever, try and go to bed, can't. So I've been literally sitting up, doing all my notes at night, doing homework at night. And when I tell you, I probably looked like an actual, like, psychopath, like, sitting there, like, looking up Dime Bang Daryl, was a good person? <laughs> like, the things I was typing in. But I was, like, obsessed with this case. I spent hours looking through this, and I was like, this is, like, a great story. I mean, it's obviously very sad and tragic but I was like I feel really good telling the story about this guy because he seems like he was a great person and people should remember this great people should remember him and his goats goatee (laughs) his goats goatee (laughs) um so that's the story of Dime Big Daryl and that's all I have for you this week I guess Anyway, it's going to be a lot. It's going to be a long episode. (laughs) It is going to be a long episode. I think these two stories I just did are, like, some of the best ones I've ever covered. Like, I think I like them the most out of everything I've covered. I don't know if I've just gotten more excited recently about doing this and researching, but I I just, in general, I've liked everything we've done more. I've been having fun. Or just more comfortable with it. Who knows? I have more energy, even though I'm sleeping way less. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, okay, well... You know, try and be a nice guy like Dimebag Daryl and Dave Grohl and uh, try not to kill anyone and don't mess with Ouija boards. Bye. Bye. <laughs>